five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. My guest this time is Tim Chrisman, the executive director of the Foundation for the Future a US-based nonprofit organization dedicated to help building the space economy. Their objectives include helping to ensure there's sufficient financing and sufficient qualified workforce around for us to do that. Tim will tell us all about it. If you do enjoy the show, please leave us a review and or rating on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple or Spotify, so more people can find the podcast. Now, as usually here, a couple of short messages from our sponsors, then please enjoy my conversation with Tim Crisman. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, hello again, everybody. I'm here today with Tim Chrisman, the executive director and founder of the Foundation for the Future. How are you, Tim? I'm well, Raphael. How are you? It's great. It's a pleasure to have you here. Obviously, you know, we've seen each other a few times now. I try to always come for the, uh, the regular events that Foundation for the Future is putting on, the uh, Conversations for the Future, which are always very interesting um, two-day events, actually, where Lots of interesting speakers come on and discuss space-related topics, and we shall talk about those events. And I think, you know, people who are listening to this podcast, they probably should also listen to our conversations for the future. I think there's a very strong overlap. But let me start. Usually we have space entrepreneurs on, and we ask them sort of for the elevator pitch of their company. Um, so, of course, Foundation for the Future is a little bit different than Foundation. But so I'm going to ask you basically to do the same thing. What's the summary, the elevator pitch of, uh, of F4F? Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, and thanks for having me on here. Uh, so our our elevator pitch is uh, we are a nonprofit that is built around this idea that space needs to be boring before it can be real. And it's kind of a weird thing to say when I'm here on a space podcast. But uh, and when we look around anywhere people live and grow businesses, where they're at, is secondary to what they're doing, whether it's in the jungle, uh, on a mountain, in a desert. It's secondary to what they're building. And we want space to be that background. And to do that, you need the basic infrastructure that enables living and working, the sort of roads and rails and power lines and sewers uh, that you know we take for granted in most of the developed world. And so that's really what we're dedicated to. And we're working towards that through a combination of financial tool uh, development and advocacy and workforce development. Because it's once you bridge Wall Street and Main Street that you can really make a lot of these long-term projects happen that can continue the momentum that the space economy has right now. So that's very interesting. So we'll, we'll talk about those in turn, like the things like the financial tools and, um, and the, the workforce development and how that all can help to make space 
um, a, a, a boring activity, as you said, although I do agree with you. It's a funny thing to say, like one week after we stacked Starship, it doesn't seem yeah, like more exactly. right now for the moment. But of course, Starship is sort of maybe one of the key um, infrastructure elements, so to say, like, you know, the railroad to space, uh, which gets me to my question. Is there sort of like, when you guys were conceiving this, is there sort of like historical precedents you were talking, you were thinking about, like railroads or I don't know, like Hoover Dam or Tennessee Valley or anything like that? When we first started, we tried to to look back across history and look at where have there been either organizations that are promoting infrastructure development or federal or governmental entities that do infrastructure development corporation on kind of a grand scale. Um, uh, and there's a handful like the East India uh, Tea Company, Hudson Bay Corporation um, are two that sort of reach into colonial times uh, modern ones here in America are more modern are, as you said, the um, development of the railroad, which was more ad hoc. Um, but the Tennessee Valley Authority is one that had a very narrow mandate in a very specific area uh, to do a lot of infrastructure development. And so we have looked to that organization for a lot of lessons. Uh, not everything went right, but we do have about 80 years of history to be able to pull what worked and what didn't. And so that's been very helpful. Let's let's take a step back. Uh, how did you come up with this? What, what motivated this? How did the idea first start? So I guess 2019 into 2020, I was writing a book called Humanity in Space. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, essentially a collection of short stories about different experiences people are going to have in space over the next hundred years. And after each short story is kind of a technical explanation of the science behind what's happening. Everything from uh, time delay and communications to medical procedures in space and zero G. Um, and so just the range of human activities that we're going to go through that'll be dramatically different than anything we've done. And when I finished this uh, book, and the characters in the book were all co-workers of mine, so I wrote them in uh, to the short stories as like a fun thing to do. But I realized I wasn't in the book, and I wasn't because I realized I didn't believe I was ever going to be there, and I and that like really jarred me. And so this is this is now in the middle of COVID um, last summer, and I'm finished the book. And I'm realizing, like, I don't believe what I've just written and realized I was waiting for people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos to make space real for me. And I had a choice. I could keep doing that or I could just start trying to make a change. And it may not get us all the way there, but if I could move the needle, I could. that would be great. And so that was the impetus for the foundation. Um, what then grew out of that was looking across industry and trying to figure out how can I help? I'm not good at math. I'm not a scientist. Um, and I have spent 15 years doing um, intelligence work and political science and forecasting. And so for the most part, my skills are the ones that get people elected in D.C. and, and uh, move 
uh, elections. And so I realized I could make a difference being here in D.C. and working to create those political systems and structures for the space economy that don't yet exist. Um, and out of that grew the realization that the space community really lacks some long-term financial drivers, and blue-collar workforce development. And so those are the two areas that the foundation has grown into to help try to solve. Is it so much that the structures, I guess some sort of structures existed, right? Because we've had space programs for, obviously, since since the days of, of well, Apollo and before Apollo, right? But I guess what you're saying is the, the political structures were geared towards executing space in a certain way, right? With sort of like these big government missions and not necessarily towards creating a broad space community that could really involve us all, right? Yeah, the, the space, so the structures, especially here in D.C., Uh, in the political engines are built around these government programs largely for exploration or defense. And so in many ways, it's it's similar to having uh, the entire um, segment of the economy that is looking at manufacturing, for instance. But all they are geared towards is National Science Foundation and the DOD. Um, There's no Department of Commerce analog, Small Business Administration. Uh, and so all these other entities that have support systems for ground side companies and industries don't have a mandate for space or don't know what to do in relation to space. And so trying to broaden that out as we've you know, almost left the age of exploration and are entering the age of commerce in space. Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about sort of the specific ways how you're going about doing that. And you mentioned a couple of times now, one is the sort of having the financial tools at hand, and then the second one is making sure there's enough human talent and, and, and workforce around. Um, so I guess might as, let's start with finance, right? I'm a finance yeah. person. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easy. What, um, so, so obviously, again, historically, Well, historically, most of the money for space would have come from the government. Um, yeah. Still true to some extent. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the, the defense, well, the U.S., the DOD and its various uh, forms and branches, and then the intelligence community are still providing a lot of money um, to space, which, which I guess is a good thing. Right, right. Um, so what, what, what do you want to add now? Like, ideally, how should we structure the financing environment for to develop the space economy? Yeah, ideally... Um... And, well, at least initially, what um, is needed is long-term um, debt financing. Um, and um, then that may look like bonds, that may look like loan guarantees, uh, or just um, secured loans, uh, debt-based uh, loans from commercial banks. Uh, none of those are really in existence for the space community. Uh, sure, the primes can get debt financing, uh, but that's based on the strength of uh, multi-billion dollar programs elsewhere, mm. not necessarily their space portfolios. Um, and I've talked to dozens of company leaders across uh, the sector who have said, look, I've got you know, satellites in orbit creating revenue and I can't leverage that for a loan. I, you know, they like, uh, you know, in previous lives, I've had houses that are rental properties and I can get loans based on those as collateral, but I can't for the satellite because commercial lenders have no way to quantify the risk 
models don't work because they've never been created. And so what we're looking to do and pushing the U.S. federal government to do is buy down some of that risk initially, because ultimately there's hundreds of billions, if not more, in terms of private capital that's available to be invested. It's not like it's sitting stagnant right now, but that there's tons of excess capital that can be invested in space if the risk reward ratio is able to even be quantified for these institutional investors. And so uh, we've created a uh, investment corporation that the U.S. federal government would charter uh, and give it the power to issue federally backed loan guarantees and bonds and basically turn this into a risk buy-down mechanism for private capital to invest in space. Um, so I'm trying to, um, I'm, I'm sort of more, a, I did mention I'm from the financial markets, but I'm much more on the equity side, I must admit. But so what, we, what are you describing right now, sort of like you know, putting in, um, let's call it, um, almost like government, like you said, it's, it's taking down risk and the government yep. is basically taking down risk, sort of putting a backstop. Uh, it sort of vaguely reminds me of sort of like, you know, entities like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Yep. Exactly. Freddie Mae. Yep. Um, very analogous to that. It, the structure um, would be similar, albeit with less government control. Um, so there's almost three tiers of government corporation. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, I think, middle of the road in terms of um, they have their employees are pseudo government employees uh, and they have fairly strict government oversight. What we're proposing is a fully private federal corporation. So the board of directors, half of them would be appointed by the government, the other half would be private shareholders, and none of the employees would be government employees. Uh, and so uh, it would essentially have the government putting up some of these federal authorities as its share of the capitalization and the private markets putting up uh, buying shares and, and actual dollars for their contribution. And so I'm sure you guys have thought a little bit about governance and sort of how, I mean, in the government entity, yes, it's taking down risk for private players, but of course it has to think about managing its own risk as well. And of course, when I mentioned Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and I should have, we should probably sort of 30 seconds explain for especially non-American listeners what those are. And it's basically, um, you know, it's about mortgages and backstopping mortgages. Um, I mean, if I'm correct, both of them effectively blew up in the subprime crisis. Right. Correct. Yeah. Because the risk wasn't <laughs> the yeah. risk wasn't very appropriately managed. Um, so I mean, with, with that, I mean, I do think those are very valuable mechanisms. Um, and um, I mean, we're not going to go into a discussion on the subprime crisis, you know, which is a very interesting <laughs> event historically. But so I'm sure that's something, of course, that that you guys are aware of, and sort of when you guys think about the government governance for a sort of similar entity for. Uh, developing the space economy, how, how you think in governance, uh, managing risks and all of these things? Yeah, so that that is definitely something that is in uh, the back of our heads as we're sort of trying to do some of the, the legwork of designing uh, sample portfolio and um, how this organization could manage the risk. And one of the things we've written into the 
draft legislation is a isolated risk management committee um, as part of the organization that has the fiduciary duty to report to Congress annually on how the corporation is making its investments, analyze any investments that are tied to any of the shareholders, uh, and serve as the pseudo-inspector general and uh, investment vetting uh, uh, organization that um, helps with that, because in some of our early talks with um, people up on the Hill and others in the uh, finance community, that was one of the early flags that was raised. Um, and so between that and then taking a lot of the lessons learned from the U.S. Department of Energy's loan guarantee program, which right now is about $36 billion in loan guarantees that's issued and uh, is running a 2% default rate and a 10% return on investment uh, across that portfolio over the past 15 or 20 years. I'm told that's really good. I don't, you know, know commercial lending, but I'm told that's a good return. Uh, and so we've tried to build the authorities and capabilities of the this space corporation to mirror that. And and how do you see the, um, the the investment side happening in the sense of um, you know how much is it going to be inbound? Sort of like people, entrepreneurs can show up and say like, look, we have this project, and um, you know we could use a you know a debt component in the balance sheet, and, and and then you look at that and it gets approved, that doesn't get approved, or, or how much is there also going to be sort of like a let's call it a top down driving element of like, well, we want to, we're trying to build space infrastructure here, and we really need this element and we really need that we need like a space station and we need like i don't know like system of transport and we need like sure. a another type of gps uh, how much sort of bottom up inbound versus top down uh, strategic planning for the space economy yeah um as as designed right now the the organization itself would probably split 75 inbound, 75% inbound, 25% top down. Um, and that is in, in no small part because the organization is mandated to be profitable and not require money from the government. And so while it does also have sort of a public benefit requirement um, for use of these authorities, it still has to find those profitable um, opportunities. Um, and so as uh, we've been looking at the different ways to encourage that, uh, what it looks like is having the majority of the loan guarantee portfolio um, be done in cooperation with private equity um, and be that inbound things where the deal may already be looking to be mostly shored up or um, otherwise uh, solid, but needs the extra backstop of a government guarantee. And so that would be, you know, probably of the initial $355 billion portfolio of this organization, that would probably be the better part of $200 billion. Um, but uh, then we're looking at a handful of revolving funds where um, the government would then have more of a say in those, you know, cislunar fuel and material reserves and uh, lunar bases and space station uh, components. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, you effectively started mentioning like a number of stakeholders who need to be involved in this already. I mean, uh, so first you mentioned a 
the draft legislation. So that sounds very interesting. So there is a, a draft of a, of a bill out there. What, what exactly is that, is that about? Yeah, so um, we have uh, drafted uh, legislation uh, that would uh, create the Space Corporation, so this Infrastructure Development Corporation, uh, and uh, have been taking it around uh, Capitol Hill on the past six months or so, and have lined up the better part of 100, a little more than that, um, senators and representatives who have said, this is a great idea, we would we would co-sponsor this. Um, and right now, the, the most, uh, the big thing that we're working towards is getting it actually worked through all the legal hoops of reviewed, it's with the House Legislative Council right now, um, and finding those handful of lawmakers who have the time and inclination to be the original people that introduce it. And so they are the ones who are gonna have a lot of extra paperwork and time and um, effort that they have to put into it. And so the other people just get to sign their name at the bottom and say, yeah, we love it. Uh, and it's really easy. Uh, and so finding those handful that can do that initial work uh, is while we're clearing the legal hurdles is where we're at now. And, and this sort of the, the, the support you mentioned you've received from uh, lawmakers, has it been uh, bipartisan across the aisle? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty even split um, about back on both sides of who supports it. Um, and what's really interesting is uh, we've gotten a ton of really good feedback for one from staffs and, uh, and lawmakers about wondering why we did things the way we did, would, you know, what about tweaking it this way or that? And so we're probably on like version 35 or 40 by now. Uh, wow. And it's been really, really encouraging and helpful to get all that feedback. But the other thing is we've, we've not received pushback in terms of saying this is a bad idea or it's not needed. Um, instead, it, the, the most negative thing we've heard is we're overwhelmed right now and we just don't have time to talk. Can we talk later? This sounds like a really innovative, cool idea. Um, and that has been sort of a surreal experience because, um, I mean, I've been here in DC for six or seven years now and nothing has this sort of bipartisan happiness and support, uh, it seems. Uh, it's, it's weird. So I assume as with any sort of, uh, sort of new legislative project, at the end of the day, you need some um, budget for this somewhere, you know, to set up a corporation and sort of like ongoing cost and, um, and, and you know, to sort of like uh, backstop the, the debt you will issue. Um, is that, where would that, what, what kind of bucket would that budget come from? Yeah, um, this, is, this is probably the part that took the longest to work out because one of the things we knew would be the quickest way to kill this project is um, ending up taking money from the wrong powerful person. Uh, and so what we have created and the mix of authorities essentially allows this corporation to be set up with little to no upfront investment on the government's part. And there may be um, some initial OPEX that's needed in, to actually start the ball rolling. However, previous iterations like the Commercial Satellite Corporation, ComSat in the 60s, didn't require that. Um, but what would capitalize it is a sale of shares. And so uh, based on an analysis of other government uh, corporations like this, 
the IPO would probably net somewhere between two and four billion, um, uh, assuming roughly forty to forty-five percent of the corporation was was sold, uh, and that that helps. But the real money comes from an initial bond issuance. So um, that bonding is then the money that's used to backstop these um, these loan guarantees, and so you've essentially created. Uh, a derivative uh, out of the bond money. Okay, and that that sounds very interesting. And so, one other group of stakeholders are you mentioned private equity funds. Mm-hmm. So I guess it'd be like you know co-investors. Ultimately, yep. I mean, I guess they could be investors in any of these tranches. Plus, they could yep. be co-investors. Have, have you had any substantial um, discussions with you know um, with funds like that, other institutional investors, and how they would? Um, see an organization like that yeah we've uh we've had a number of talks with you know firms ranging from the large like kkr and blackrock um through uh some like uh bank of montreal uh that are maybe non-traditional players um and in most cases what we what we hear is we would we love the idea of investing in infrastructure in any kind this is like a established segment for them um but space is not on their radar and when we start to talk through how we can buy down the risk what kind of risk would they need bought down and how uh they're very interested and uh really eager to hear how this is going follow it because um, this would open a whole new sort of segment of the market for them to start investing in that right now uh, they haven't even started considering let me, let me ask you another question. So whenever it comes to sort of um, government avenues supporting um, commercial space activities, right, in the broadest yeah. sense, and I'm not only talking about the U.S. here, actually, I'm thinking about Europe and other regions. I'm not going to single out any particular country, right, but mm. very often there is a immediate sort of concern, if not stereotype, especially on the part of uh, quote, smaller space entrepreneurs is like, oh, this is great. There's going to be another program. There's going to be like billions of dollars are going to be funneled to the primes and... What am I going to get out of this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably something you guys have thought of, thought about as well. That's, that is uh, surprisingly, that is uh, I think the third most frequently asked question from congressional offices, um, which is not what you would expect. Um, but there is a concern that any new money put into space programs is just going to go to established ones, and so that was one of the reasons we are so insistent about creating a new organization rather than giving these authorities to an existing one. Um, And in doing so, not only is there now not the same institutional momentum and memory to go to those established players, but also by creating this organization without essentially the ability to go back and ask for more money, um, you've forced it into a position where just like another fund that is starting up on the market, it has the financial incentive to make sure the deals it's doing are solid because it's got to start creating a good track record and not just throw money after bad. So you just mentioned somewhere in the middle, you mentioned this was the third most frequently asked question. Yeah. <laughs> of course, now I have to ask what the top two questions are. <laughs> Probably one of them is about the risk, what we talked about as you, but. Yeah, uh, the first most asked question is uh, who else supports it? Uh, And the second most asked question is 
Um, what does the other um, representatives or senators from my state think? And the first one, just to be clear, who else supports that? Is that also talking about senators and representatives or like yep, broader? Yep. Than uh, well, oh, okay. usually it is uh, senators and representatives and um, major industry players. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay, let's. Um, I mean, we we could go on talking hours just about this. <laughs> I think this is fascinating. I, I I kind of preview. We will be talking a lot more about it in different forms as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's let's move because I do want to get to workforce development as well, which is something that's very dear to my heart as well. Because I do think we need a lot more people in space if we mm. want a space economy. So what what is the sort of the main? What are the main thoughts and, and avenues here on the, on the workforce development side? Yeah. So uh, on the workforce development side, what we've seen over the past, well, basically the entire uh, space era, the workforce development is really focused on engineers and up. So um, looking for those people who can design the n newest rocket or actually uh, execute the making of it. And what's missing is the blue collar piece, all of the technicians and the, the welders and mechanics that support every other segment of the economy. And so what we've started doing is taking a, a long look at how NASA has executed its space grant consortium, which is essentially a network where every state uh, has a lead school, and that school administers the state's grants for STEM education. Um, and so that administers about $100 million a year. The schools rotate every year, um, and uh, it just seems to be a good model for deploying a large amount of grant money to a lot of schools. And so we're looking to replicate that, but at the community and technical college level for the space technician training. And so we've started the process of cataloging what programs exist, who has gone through the, the hard task of standing up these programs like in Florida and Washington State, and how did they do that? Uh, and the next phase of that will be exporting the model to states that are adjacent to uh, space states or communities like Brownsville, Texas, who are emerging but don't yet have that educational infrastructure in place. Um, and so we've already uh, started, as I said, the work on cataloging what exists and uh, the work in Congress to start uh, getting uh, lawmakers to understand that this is a gap in the current technical education fields. Uh, and that has been incredibly warmly received and rapidly acted on. Um, we started talking about this in May. By July, uh, we had the chairwoman of the U.S. House of Appropriation, the House Appropriations Committee for Defense, personally uh, insert language in the Defense Appropriations Bill uh, that mandated the U.S. Defense Department create a blue-collar workforce development pipeline um, for space and other hard to fill positions. Um, and so over the next year to 18 months, we're gonna be working with the task force that that law will uh, set up to help execute that. 
and then expand it to the civilian side as well. Yeah, so that, that's interesting because I was going to ask you to, uh, if I remember correctly, right? Um, yeah. in, in the US, education as such is state responsibility, right? Yes. So I was wondering how much you could sort of do via the federal, like on the federal level, and how much yeah. you have to go state by state. Yeah. So we we do have to do it state by state. In many cases, school by school. Um, okay. And so um, the the sort of primary and secondary education levels uh, are mostly uh, state-led. Once you get into the post-secondary uh, to the cert certifications and associate degree levels, um, in many cases, that's school by school. And so um, on the one hand, there's going to be need, need to be some work with the certifying bodies, like the uh, whoever certifies the welding curriculum and the electrical curriculum. And so we're working with them, um, but also there just needs to be the programs established in these local schools. Um, and so the role we see with the government is supplying that educational grant money, because right now there's a problem where the schools don't want to develop these curriculums because a lot of it depends on having internships with employers. And employers don't want to relocate there because there's no skilled workers. And so we're trying to jumpstart that with, uh, it's going to be a $25 million grant program for the first year to start some of these programs as pilots in a variety of states uh, and uh, test it out and before growing from there. We've seen in some other sectors like, you know, sort of um, called alternative um, initiatives in education, right, outside the traditional education system, right, like, you know, probably know this, the startup Lambda school, right? Where mm, yeah, yeah. basically you're not in a high school, you're not a university, it's, it's basically a private school, but you learn something but which they claim was actually really useful, like data science or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Is there something like that we could do in, in space? That I, I don't know, you, you put like a private facility in Boca Chica and it's like, you learn how to build starships. <laughs> no, um, and that, that could uh, and probably will end up being an important component is, you know, as these communities grow into essentially one company tailored towns, uh, at least mm -hmm. initially, it's going to look very similar to Boeing in the Seattle area 30, 40 years ago, where um, when they were there, they just built the schools to be what they needed them to be. Um, the they had a head start because the government sort of uh, was paying for bombers from World War II on. Um, but uh, what, that's where we need a little bit of support to get the cycle rolling instead of paying SpaceX to develop Starship bombers or Blue Origin to develop, uh, you know, military cargo rockets. <clears throat> Gotcha. I guess sort of a sort of workforce related uh, and bringing the two things together. We're talking about the, uh, space, the space corporation, right? Um, who, who would be? What would be the ideal type of person, profile of person to run the space corporation that's established? Yeah. Um, so ideally, the the person. Well, and I guess we've done more work looking at the board for the, um, mm. the space corporation and uh, looking at uh, pushing for a mix of existing um, industry um, insiders. So of the 13 members on the board, two to three of them being aerospace focused, two to three being finance focused. 
um, a handful being former uh, politicians or, or government officials, but then having a dedicated carve out for small businesses, uh, labor, and education on the board to have that as a dedicated representation because a lot of what is being invested in by this uh, new organization would be things that are 10, 15, 20 years out. And we wanna make sure that there's a long-term focus of that. And so taking into account the views of educators, of workers is as important as making sure that the investment itself is solid. Yeah. The other question that just came to my mind is sort of, I mean, you obviously have background from the intelligence community. And I'm sure you know sort of the DOD, the military side really well too. Do you see the space corporation as something that sort of runs, like how integrated is it going to be with the, the military side? Is it going to be sort of separate, assuming, well, the DOD, they're going to sort of like do their stuff anyway, and they know what they want, and they're going to finance that through many different vehicles. Yeah. And then the space corporation is going to be more on the civil side, or is it going to be something that's that's integrated, or is it just not clear yet how it may play out? Well, so the, the vision is that it sits between NASA and Space Force um, mm -hmm. and frees both up to do their missions more. And so uh, those, you know, DOD investments that are more dual use, like a strategic fuel or mineral reserve, mm -hmm. um, is something that it can coordinate with the Space Corporation with. Likewise, a lot of the Artemis type projects for commercialized development of LEO or the moon would be ones that NASA could coordinate closely with the Space Corporation with, uh, both to free up their budgets for more focused activities on their mission, but also because when it is essentially handed off to a private investment firm that is working with private equity, we're going to get a faster result that's going to be better for all of us. And so that just works for them as well. Uh, it doesn't have to go through their contracting process. There's not the same ability for organizations to challenge and sue over uh, missed deals because it's not the same money that's being deployed by those uh, that are directly appropriated. Have you... Um... Have you seen any interesting models, parallel, similar things happening elsewhere in the world where, you know, you thought those were interesting um, comps and you're looking at them maybe to um, take best practices? Yeah, so um, India has uh, developed um, uh, a, a interesting uh, wing of the Indian Space Research Organization, uh, and uh, I'm actually supposed to talk with their chairman uh, later this week um, because they they have a similar model where they have a dedicated, essentially, investment firm that sits outside the traditional government channels to help speed investments along. Um, it is much more government directed in what it's investing in, um, but it's the tools and techniques it's used are very similar. And so that's why I'm really excited to be talking with the chairman about it, because I want to know what's worked, what hasn't, uh, and try to, as much as possible, figure out, um, is there an appetite 
with, when the Space Corporation is created to start exploring an international consortium. If there's now multiple countries that have these, uh, can we merge into an you know, Intel SAT equivalent um, to start doing those large projects that are going to be global in their benefit? I'm thinking space-based solar power would be one that comes sure. to mind. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes, I mean, it really makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, it's then even another level of de-risking, right? Yeah, exactly. You basically have the international con, um, the syndication internationally, right? And yeah, space-based solar power is a fascinating example. Um, it could also be something like, um, you know, the, like you mentioned the lunar base before, we all need like, you know, en energy on the moon and life support and just these basic utility type things, right? Right, right, exactly. Very interesting. How, um, Tim, how can people get involved? Yeah, um, so the, the first way, I mean, as you mentioned at the, the outset, once a month we have uh, uh, two-day events that are focused on different components of uh, space infrastructure. This last month was workforce development. Next month is sustainability and space debris. Um, and so attend those events. You can find them at our website, uh, F. 4f.space. Uh, the next layer of support is being a pathfinder advocate. And so these are people that are in uh, a U.S. state that are excited about what we're doing and want to help uh, with our work at the state and federal level and are willing to write letters to their congressperson or senator uh, and help us advocate. Uh, that we've seen make a difference fast. We have tried in some cases for months to get meetings with Congress people and senators and have one of their constituents write a letter and within a week we have uh, a meeting. And this doesn't need to be the rich and powerful writing the letter. Regular people doing it has that result. Um, and the third is we're a nonprofit. And so we ultimately need donations and membership, um, corporate and individual. And so if you like what we're doing, are excited by the mission uh, and are willing to support us, uh, that is how we're able to keep this going. Terrific. And um, we'll, we'll put a few links into the show notes, like, for example, for the next event, the conversations for the future, but, but also like, you know, how, can, how people can get involved in these, these other roles that you mentioned. Tim, we always finish up here talking about science fiction. Um, you know, Space Corporation works out and um, on all of its levels, right? We, we have like sufficient workforce and sufficient financing to build out our future in space. What's the type of science fiction uh, you want to see um, in terms of uh, specific, I don't know, maybe uh, science fiction novels, movies, uh, TV series you can think about and that you like? Uh, I promised my daughters a space elevator. Uh, oh. They both want to go to space, but they don't like getting shots. And they heard that astronauts need to get a lot of shots. <laughs> and so I... Uh, was told them both about space elevators. My daughter, one of my daughter's uh, most detailed early drawings was of a space elevator. Actually, I have it hanging on my wall over here. Uh, and rendered it into an engineering blueprint. Um, but given the capital and the workforce, um, that's the sort of science fiction future I want to see. Space being just an elevator right away. Uh, that's that's terrific. And uh, for our listeners, there is an episode from maybe two, three, four months ago with Michael Lane from. Port, who has been uh, thinking about uh, space elevators for the last 20 years. And by the way, um, as you can hear in that episode, um, there's sort of, uh, you can have elevators from the Earth's surface, but 
you could also have one from the moon's surface. So it is really a very, a very fascinating concept. Tim, we love what you're doing. Um, it, it, it's just great. I think organizations like Foundations for the Future are, are very necessary. It's uh, very grateful that people like you are spending uh, time on this. It's going to be beneficial to all of us in the future. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll have you back sometime in one or two years to see how things developed and whether we're able to pass that bill and, and so forth. And you know, best of luck with all those efforts. Yeah, thank you, Raphael. This has been exciting and great. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.